Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a number of human-generated files, several of which involve computer-generated files. A little later on, Jennifer Walsh on distilling the sound of the season, and the artist behind the AI-generated Phantom Loeb explains what she thinks is going on. But we're listening first. What's new about that, I might hear you ask, if this microphone were pointed some other direction? What flavour of listening, though? Background burble, breath held, eyes shut, intent listening? Or that special sort of listening, when you queue up your favourite podcast as you get ready to drift off to sleep? Because there's nothing wrong with that either. Our guests this time are Nushka Gross and Robert Brewer-Young, a psychoanalyst and a luthier respectively, are in listening professions. Together they've written a book, Uneasy Listening, exploring what their special types of listening might say about all our listenings. Culturefile went to meet them in a room above an instrument clinic in Marlebone in London. So, um, if we start on first principles, what, what is listening? Being present for with ears open and um, attentive, showing up for someone without too many preconceived ideas, um, not imposing, um, receding to some degree, being close. Yeah, the thing, attention, seems a really important word in all of that of being attentive because I suppose attention involves being engaged with something outside yourself definitely in both of our work you have to sort of put yourself outside yourself in order to do it but but how do you really do that you can't there's uh, there's you know trouble ahead that you still have to do it you have to try to do something that's probably impossible I'm Anushka Gross and we're sitting at Beers, which is in Marylebone in London and it's a violin dealer and they work with antique instruments and they have lots of Stradivariuses and other violins and cellos. My name is Robert Brewer-Young. Where are we physically? Ah, we're in uh, the attic and this is the scientific research department that I set up during the pandemic. I was planning on writing a book about listening by myself and it was locked down and it was kind of boring and I was working very hard because lots of people wanted to do psychoanalysis on Zoom during the lockdowns and so I was sort of very busy and the book wasn't happening. And then I got an email from, out of the blue, from a stranger called Robert Burry Young. Just a pleasant chatty email because he'd read something I'd written. But I saw in the sign-off that he was a violin maker and that he, you know, lectures in philosophy. So I had a cunning plan to rope him into this book that wasn't getting written. <laughs> and I thought if I had a co-author, it was, you know, obviously he's good at listening. If, if you can make a violin, you've got to be good at listening to something. So I just asked him, without having met him, whether he would like to write a book together. We do um, various forms of interventions, um, different types of analysis and study, acoustic analysis, photography analysis, microscopy, and other ways of doing a kind of forensic consideration of historical instruments. to do a lot of listening in my psychoanalytic work and it's it's a funny kind of listening because that you know at the moment even on the NHS you can be given a sent home with a CD to 
work on your own with so you don't get a therapist you get told to go away and listen to a cd and sort out your problems by yourself and then there are people developing these kind of uh, chatbots therapy chatbots and all these things so i was thinking about the idea of being a human therapist and obviously you're quite imperfect as a, you're an imperfect listener but maybe it's your imperfection that makes you better than a robot <laughs> Both of us have to listen a lot, but we have to listen to very different things. So I mostly listen to people's speech. Robert also has to listen to people's speech, but um, as well as violins and cellos. <laughs> it's, it's, and then that's quite a big add in, I think. And the other thing we noticed is that he often has to cure things. He has to cure violins and cellos and, and make them better. There could be various forms of dysfunction, like a broken string would be a problem, um, or an old one, or different ways of being set up or having an open seam, weather, cracks, all the things that bodies are subjected to, um, instruments are as well, and um, sometimes need uh, attention. I mean, that's assuming that there is some kind of an ideal of a state of perfect health for an instrument or a mind. Um, which I don't think is necessarily the case. You're dealing with organic materials, and um, I don't think there is a platonic ideal of a violin. So if they're broken, it would be referring to some non-existent ideal from my perspective. Yeah, and the same would go for a mind, I guess, that, that minds are sort of structurally unstable or whatever, they're full of contradictions and, you know, strong pulls in different directions and silences and disruptions. There should be something, or should there be something fundamentally different uh, between listening to something made from wood and listening to a human? I mean, we're listening to traffic, you listen to birds, you listen to clouds even though they're silent. I mean, we're constantly listening to and for things. And um, I think having strict categories between forms of listening is slightly absurd. And um, we're listening within silence and to silence. We're listening to people's aspirations all the time. We're listening to noise. We're trying to listen to ourselves and one another. So it's more aspirational than categorical, in my view. Yeah, and I suppose in psychoanalysis, a lot of people might have the idea that you're just listening to words or language, and when you're listening to language, you're listening for meaning. But maybe it's not as simple as that. So if you're listening for something else, then what can you say about the something else? And then I think that becomes quite difficult to say. And it's not that you're just saying, oh, body language is also important, <laughs> but but that people might put, you know, double or triple meanings into words and you don't know which one is the important one, all, all that sort of stuff. But but yeah, I suppose that is the, the radical project of psychoanalysis, that you actually listen to what people say and that you don't treat the organism as the only thing that can get you into trouble or make you suffer, that the psyche is also important in suffering. And so what kinds of suffering can the psyche produce and the only way you can find about you know the best way to find out about that is to listen to, <laughs> to what people say but I suppose especially because a lot of those first patients were women just hysteria was this sort of you know this ongoing illness that nobody knew how to respond to it it was you know very troubling and um, troublesome and unpleasant for the women who experienced it and the men who experienced it sometimes too but but nobody knew what to do or how to respond or how to make it better and you could say that psychoanalysis still treated it like an illness whereas actually looking at the kind of psychosocial side 
might have been well it might have been good if people had done that a little bit sooner that you know if women were in these rubbish marriages and they didn't have much choice about how to live then that might very well make them suffer and getting ill is actually a really clever way of responding to those sorts of um, you know problem listening to women suffering and taking it seriously was something very unusual I think at the time It seems from birth, being paid attention to is something very, very compelling. I mean, it's sort of almost necessary for human development. It is necessary for human development that the people around you pay attention to you from the minute you appear in the world. And so I think attention continues to be something really sort of primal and life-giving. And so if you pay attention to people, (laughs) you get surprising results. Like, well, this first result in this first psychoanalysis that the patient fell in love with the doctor and he had not expected that at all and seemed to have been completely horrified (laughs) and stopped being a psychoanalyst. Um, so, so listening has it's it's potent. I fall in love with instruments. It's a fact, and through that, there's a there is an emotional element to that, and I feel attached to them, and I wonder how they'll make their way in the world and through future histories, and how they will serve players. So, yes, there are instruments that I've had profound and for me quite intimate relationships with. And some of them are ones that I maintain over time, and some of them that I'll see once in a museum and document or photograph. Or, um, but occasionally something will be particularly touching, and there's some encounter that for me is, I don't know if you want to call it transference or transcendence or something else, or just a sense of humility before the work of a master. In a sense, the violin's a machine. It's a technology, um, and you're working with a thing. But one of the things I was interested in in the book, in in a way, is that language is a technology and a machine, and that's all we've got, really, to articulate ourselves through. And so the thing with the playing of a violin and this excitement about it or the beauty of it is because something sort of more than machinic has come out of this thing. If you allow for that with people, I mean, that's what helped me when I went to see a therapist. I didn't want to be told to be sensible. I wanted to have space to say things that seemed almost impossible to say or to see what you could do with speech or in a conversation or with a listener. And that's what actually helped. Between seeing and hearing and those boundaries words that are used to describe sound they're quite often visual in English in French there will be more words that are associated with taste acide Argentine like I mean things along those lines yeah amer in English it's quite often very visual something sounds shiny or brash or it's things that we we appeal to a language of visual sense, um, whereas what does it mean when you apply a different kind of language or no language at all and you make sounds that imitate sounds? Largely referring to a colleague who uses vowel sounds, so he's making sounds and singing. You know, which vowel projects the furthest? E which is the closest and projects the least, even if at the same number of decibels is U. And what are the differences between those? And and what are the overtones associated with those different vowels? 
thinking of things in terms of tone and sound and relations to vowels instead of to taste or to sight. O, ow, and, you know, the nasal sound, ow, uh, when you hold your nose, you know, sort of pushes on the thousand hertz level and um, very specific things happening with overtones. So it's an interesting modality of analysis. I mean, the, the, definitely with Lacanian psychoanalysis, my one, the focus on language is huge. Like you never fuss about other things. It's just the person's speech. But with the acknowledgement that meaning is a very, is just one element of language. <laughs> and so if you just say you're listening to language, that doesn't mean you're just listening to meaning. I mean, someone will say silvery, I'll know exactly what they're talking about. Someone else will say silvery and play a note and I'll be lost in the woods. Um, so it's not even the vocabulary that necessarily clarifies an experience of listening, but the person who's putting that language to work and how they're doing it. I'm interested in how people listen to the planet. You know, maybe where we are now is is a sort of a lack of successful listening over, over quite some time. But I was thinking about your work, Robert, as listening to wood and listening to material and listening to the natural world in a, you know, in a very kind of rarefied and specific sense. You know, it forces the question of materiality and what are these materials and where do they come from? You know, the ebony forests are being poached to uh, it's horrific the trade in ebony and 98% of it goes to the musical instrument trade and um, so listening it's not even a process of what does ebony sound like it's like what does the entire economy of harvesting wood sound like a violin bow can a traditional violin bow can have in it pieces of the body of a whale an elephant a horse a cow, a lizard, and a tortoise in one violin bow. And that's an enormous number of endangered species in half of those cases to put into an object in order to make music on a rarefied level. Are there other alternatives? Absolutely. Should we be looking for them? It seems obvious. I suppose I work with a lot of people with eco-anxiety. That would be a thing that many, many people talk about in their analysis. And you never hear someone walk into the room and say, hello, I've got eco-anxiety, <laughs> can you help? Usually they're talking about other things, but then they'll say, well, obviously I'm never going to have children because there's no world in which to have them. <laughs> we'll just, you know permeate their discourse there, there are difficulties around listening with that it's like as soon as you start to listen to what's happening and you properly hear it you know you listen to Antonio Guterres and you understand what he's saying that then in a sense you're in trouble and so there seems to be a problem with listening in the world or in you know rich countries that people just cannot hear what's constantly being said to them and and make changes accordingly and that, yeah it's very distressing and the people who feel the distress are often the people who have heard it so you can understand why people don't want to hear I mean that's why everybody loves Cassandra I think in the environmental movement because she knows what she's talking about but she's treated like a mad person and that's why she's such a big reference for all of us mm. but um yeah that's right that once you understand what's happening you do go mad 
but yeah it does give you a question of what do you then do and that was the other thing in the book that that I'd met the First Nations elders who hadn't been listened to at COP and and I could see of course politicians and and fossil fuel people don't want to listen to them because once you've heard what they say their first-hand experiences of what happens to their rivers their forests their friends their family members who get murdered you you can't bear it anymore you can't relax <laughs> and I think yeah when you get to that point of not being able to relax it just becomes very difficult to accept everyone's saying when's the collapse coming but it's like we're right in the middle if you include other people Listeners Anushka Gross and Robert Brewer-Young, they're co-authors of the book Uneasy Listening, which is out now from Mac Books. And next on the Culture File Weekly, a keyboard encounter with an AI cryptid. Loeb is a mysterious character that manifested recently in the work of artist Steph Swanson. When Swanson, who's also known as Supercomposite, was trying out a graphic-generating AI system, she found herself, for reasons she'll explain in a moment, prompting the system to draw the opposite of Marlon Brando, which set her off on a forking path to discovering the face of an un known woman. Swanson named her Loeb, not a real woman, but something dreamed up, it seems, by a quirk of the system. Since then, Swanson has encountered Loeb in multiple forms, becoming an internet flavour of the day and winning credit as the discoverer of the internet's first AI cryptid. She talked to Culture Files' Louise McMahon about her travels in AI. I discovered Loeb by accident. I had to make a, a decision on whether it was going to be Loeb or or Loab, and I chose Loeb. The name Loeb came from one of the images, and it kind of looks like an album cover that she's on. Brando colon colon that you can minus one. Add like a numerical value after your prompt. If it's positive, then it will make an image that matches the prompt. And if you use a negative value minus one, then it will try to make something as different from the prompt as possible. I was just messing around and my friend wanted a, an image of Marlon Brando for some reason. What would happen if I did Marlon Brando with a negative one prompt weight to see, you know, what's the opposite of Marlon Brando or the result was this logo that kind of has a city skyline on it. It's green and it has like gibberish text that says Digita Pintix. And so I took that logo and I described it back as a prompt. So I, I, I typed Digita Pintix skyline logo and then I added a negative prompt weight to find the opposite of that. Colon, colon, minus one. And then I immediately got a bunch of images of this same woman indoors in this kind of dingy greenish brown room with like it looked like junk or like stuffed animals piled up around her behind her it passed for she's an old woman and she has these very defined wrinkles on her face and she has these very defined cheeks that are usually like really red like she has rosacea or like a, a rash from like lupus or something she has long brown hair and she looks just like completely devastated really sad for some reason she kept exploding into like gore a diffusion model is the hot new 
type of image generation model? Well, it learns how to turn images into Gaussian noise, basically imagine, you know, static on a TV. And it kind of memorizes the mathematical patterns that it takes. So once you've trained it with all of that stuff, the really weird thing that you can do is you can just run it backwards and start out with an image of random noise and then tell the AI to get rid of noise until an image comes out and say, okay, you know how to turn a car into random noise. This image of random noise with no car in it is a car. You need to like, mathematically do the exact opposite and remove noise from this image until it's a car. Basically lying to it. And it's very strange that it actually works. Images of, and it's the best way of generating images that they've come up with yet, dogs into noise. The mathematical theory of the people who have developed these things is not necessarily even true and people don't necessarily understand why it works, even the people who are making it. People's faces into noise. There's stable diffusion, which you can download and run on your computer and go in and mess with the code because it's open source. And then there's Midjourney and Dolly, which are not things that you can do like that. They're kind of closed off and they want you to interact with them through a website or an app. All of them can be interacted with just by writing prompts. Let's pull up the image uh, that you sent to us. It's the unreleased image of Loeb. I have it pulled up, yeah. I don't know, do you want to describe it? There's this like Eskimo troll with her fuzzy marshmallow demon children. They're all really disproportionate in size they're sad and she's always in a situation with with children so we get this horrifying sort of mother character yeah and then you have the green lights there's lighting in it it's very green yeah there's the little fuzzy little fuzzy children one of them has two arms on the same shoulder as well oh yeah look at that yeah oh they're quirky little things the process that resulted in this image was basically crossbreeding images. You take an image of Loeb and you take an image of something else and you use both of those images as a prompt and then you get a resulting image. Then you can use that image in combination with other things. The lineage of, of reading these images goes so far back. Film still, 35 millimeter, Fujifilm, masterpiece, perfect shot. It's very strange because she's not a real person. It wouldn't be that strange if it was like Tom Cruise. There's a ton of images of Tom Cruise that the AI has seen and it can reproduce Tom Cruise's face really well. You wouldn't get perfect Tom Cruise faces. You would get kind of messed up Tom Cruise faces. So the fact that you can put in an image of Loeb and get like a bunch of people who are undoubtedly like the same character is definitely an anomaly. is extremely strange. You can't, you can't summon Loeb by asking for Loeb. Yeah, definitely. She's never a cold figure. She's never a computer. She's jumping off the screen. She's alive. It's very interesting to get that feeling from uh, an AI-generated image because a lot of them feel very cold in some way, I guess. Steph Swanson there on a cult AI. Louise McMahon was the reporter. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, Christmas music. I say finally, but it's not like you ever have to wait that long, particularly in Jennifer Walsh's ends, as we hear now in her latest Things Know Things. Back in September, I noticed something curious in the supermarkets near me. They had begun stocking Christmas products before we'd even hit Halloween. 
Over the last few months, the range slowly took over more shelving in the stores, to the point where Christmas products didn't seem seasonal anymore. They just seemed like another genre of world cuisine. Last week, this feeling was disrupted when I heard Christmas music playing in the supermarket for the first time. Oh no, I thought, Christmas music. It must be here now, actual Christmas. But could this really be the first time I'd heard Christmas music in the supermarket? There had been chocolate reindeers available on special offer for over three months. Because the thing is, I always notice when I hear Christmas music for the first time each year. It is a notable event for me because Christmas music is one of the most bizarre genres of music. Sodden as it is with maudlin sentiment, faux nostalgia, irony and consumerist grasping, all mixed in with outsider gold and occasional flashes of dark brilliance. What am I talking about when I talk about Christmas music? Growing up in Dublin in the 1980s, you had your carols which you sang at school, you had every Christmas number one Cliff Richards ever released, and then you had these weird records from the 1970s which seemed almost self-loathing in their naked bid for eternal royalty checks, Slade's Merry Christmas being the prime example. You had your clear demonstration of John aesthetics versus Paul aesthetics in the form of Happy Christmas, War is Over versus Wonderful Christmas Time. You had the bizarre spectacle of Wham's Last Christmas being kept off the Christmas number one spot by charity single Do They Know It's Christmas, both of which featured George Michael. Like, make up your mind, George, you can't have it both ways. Back then, Christmas music was fluffy and disposable. It was pop stars cosplaying virtue or high camp for clout or cold hard cash. It wasn't until Fairy Tale of New York was released in 1987 that there seemed the possibility that a Christmas song could go somewhere deep, somewhere real, could take in the enforced sentimentality of the season knowingly. Since the advent, see what I did there, of file sharing, we now have access to a huge range of Christmas music. And nowadays I can pad out the cheese with even riper cheese like RuPaul's Santa Baby, horror legend Christopher Lee's Darkest Carol's Faithful Sing, funk maestro Clarence Carter's Backdoor Santa, or, if I'm feeling trad, some gorgeous bluegrass versions of carols from John Fahey's The New Possibility. At the end of the day, though, Forced to put on Christmas music at a party, I am drawn to something which was released online for free, an album which has zero chance of ever reaching number one, or people dancing to it. I'm talking about Brian Whitman's 2004 album, A Singular Christmas. Music technologist Whitman made A Singular Christmas using machine learning, He trained an AI on hundreds of Christmas songs and the computer spat out tracks with festive, vaguely nonsensical titles such as Radiant Bells, Thumpety Christmas Parades and Berries Sleeping. The music sounds similar to the titles, 
a glossiness which seems to evoke bells without sounding like bells, textures and harmonic movements which seem to nod to carols round a fire without ever hearing them. There are no voices on A Singular Christmas, no lyrics, no discernible instruments. There's just washes of sound and the feeling that this music is somehow Christmassy. Thinking back to my local supermarket, of all the music that they could play there, A Singular Christmas seems perhaps the best choice. It uses an algorithm to establish a Christmas music mood in exactly the same way the shop uses an algorithm to start stocking mince pies in September. And it occurs to me that maybe a singular Christmas has been there all along, playing in the background at a homeopathic level since early autumn, nudging me towards a mood, towards seasonal purchases. Jennifer Walsh there on the genre of the moment. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back next week with a special Culture File debate on the harp and its players. That's next Saturday at 6.30pm. Till then, bye now.